0: Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Calliner Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Calliner is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Yes, it's Thursday, July the 9th, 2020. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Uh, you heard the pre-roll ad there for uh, Red Rock Photography uh, by Stacy Redman. He's actually going to be at the Maggie Valley Summer Arts and Crafts Fair this weekend, July 11th and 12th, at the Maggie Valley Festival Grounds on SoCo Road. So go see for yourself what I've been talking about and why I'm a fan of his work. Red Rock Photography, redrockphotonc.com is his website, but you can go meet him in person and pick yourself up some artwork at the Maggie Valley Summer Arts and Crafts Fair this weekend uh, in, shockingly enough, Maggie Valley. I know, right? The show is made possible by fantastic patrons uh, such as Brent and Juanita, Shan, Trudy, Lori, David, Eugene, Michelle, Paul, and Gene and Ben, I appreciate the support. Uh, it's, I know people are like, oh, he always reads the names at the beginning of the podcast. Like, well, it's like the least I can do is to say thank you for people uh, for supporting the show to people who have uh, done so, put their money behind this effort. I do appreciate it. It's the reason why the show happens. And uh, on today's show, Jonathan Blanks. He is a visiting fellow with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, and uh, he has a piece at freeop.org, which is uh, titled The Legitimacy Crisis in American Policing. Uh, And so it's a pretty interesting discussion. Hope you stick around for that. Um, Now... Obviously, if you've already been to Mattress Man and purchased a mattress, uh, then you may be listening while you're laying down, and then you're probably going to fall asleep, and you're going to have to, you know, start this whole podcast all over again. You know, hear me mention Maggie Valley, hear me mention the names, hear me mention Jonathan Blanks, and now the Mattress Man uh, uh, sponsorship zero zero zero. I, I, like I'm telling you this, knowing that you're going to go out and get a bed for a great deal at Mattress Man, and then you're going to sleep right through my podcast. I know this, but I'm a giver. What can I say? Uh Zero, zero, zero financing, zero down, zero interest for up to 24 months and zero payments for 90 days. OK, it's been uh this is the sale that they started for July 4th. It's very popular. Everybody loves it, so they're keeping it going. And uh, also, they've got other deals going on as well because they always do. Uh, Free adjustable bases with select mattress purchases, okay? Uh, They have a free box spring with the Biltmore mattress purchase. These are the Restonic Biltmore Collection mattresses made in Fayetteville, and uh, they are in the Biltmore Inn and the hotel. So uh, if you want to sleep on the beds that are at the Biltmore, and I'm I'm not talking about the mansion, because those beds look really uncomfortable, like those old, you know, 1800s beds, those things. <laughs> I've been there. I've looked at the beds inside the mansion. Like, man, they were really wealthy, but they didn't really have great beds. But you go to the hotel in the inn, fantastic beds, and you can have one too. Go to mattressmanstores.com. Check out all the inventory, Uh, and you can also walk into any of their four local stores, Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide Uh, And they have local five-star delivery service and a 120-day comfort guarantee. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. Jonathan Blanks is a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank that conducts research on expanding economic opportunity to those who least have it. He writes about criminal justice, race and policing. He has done so for quite a while. You can follow him on Twitter at Blanks Slate and welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Ah, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: So um, for, you have this piece at freeop.org, and I uh, had actually one of your uh, your fellow freeoppers. Is that what you'll call you, uh, yourselves? I'm not sure. But <laughs> I had, uh, I've had i got this piece called The Legitimacy Crisis in American Policing. So first, tell us a little bit about this area that you write about. This is sort of in your wheelhouse. Uh, tell us about uh, what you do and what your connection is to freeop.
1: Yeah, so I joined freeop a few months ago. It's a free market uh, think tank that's really focused on the people who have the least amount in our society. You know, the free market uh, think tanks tend to be uh, focused on how do we grow prosperity and like sort of macro issues. But a lot of times, uh, there's not enough uh, emphasis on the people who get left behind in, in a lot of these uh, situations. And so free Op was a think tank that was founded with the explicit purpose of showing how free market and uh, freedom virtues can help uh, the, the least, uh, fortunate in our society.
0: Right. they kind of came onto my radar when they started doing a lot of the COVID research. Um, and I uh, had a Greg Garvan, uh, on a couple of uh, weeks ago. Anyway. So, um, you write about policing, American policing. So why is this your area of interest? How did you get into this line of work?
1: So, uh, I originally, when I came out of college, I was a political science major and I went to work at, I got an internship at the Cato Institute, and I didn't law school, and uh, I got talked out of going to law school. But I was really still interested in the think tank world. And without a JD, I'm just like, okay, so what is it that we that there is there need, is a a need for a voice out there, and how to increase liberty in a way that doesn't necessarily require a a, a JD. And so I looked at policing because it is the one way that the American public feels and sees the government most obviously, obviously, every year you pay your taxes, but you can usually just mail that away. You know, you go to the DMV. Yeah, it's a hassle, but it's not that big of a deal. But you know, the police can kill you. <laughs> and so it's and the fact that there are so many ways to deal with police and how they affect our lives in so many different ways, uh, I thought was a very interesting uh, way to go uh, way to build my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Also turns out that my father was a police officer in Fort Wayne, Indiana for 20 years. And so I have his, you know, grew up with his perspective of law enforcement and just, and in my own neighborhood and how different groups of people interacted with the police. Like I grew up in a very racially mixed neighborhood and the black kids and the white kids viewed the cops very differently. And uh, so it was just something that sort of built up over time. It wasn't something that I like set out to do when I originally went to college, but it is something that just sort of landed in my lap because this is something that has been that affects everyone, although a lot of people don't necessarily think about it all the time.
0: So this is your moment, right, with the current zeitgeist, right? This is <laughs> what better it's, time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's unfortunate that it's happening in the way that it is, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm obviously well positioned to talk about these issues because it's something I've been reading about and thinking about for a long time.
0: Yeah. So um, one of the things I talk about uh, for, and have for years with listeners and in interviews. Um, usually when it comes to race relations and policing. And for a lot of what I what I tell a lot of white conservative listeners is that um, if your grandparents had uh, fire hoses turned on them and dogs sicked on them, and then nobody ever went to jail, no one ever got penalized or punished for that, you might have a different opinion about law enforcement as well. Um, and it, to, when I first, and I don't remember where I first heard that, I did not come up with that idea, but it, it seems... I don't know. It seems to kind of break through. It's the way I understood it. Um, There seems to be, though, a very different understanding of law enforcement that breaks down along generally racial lines. Am I off base on that?
1: No, it's absolutely true. Uh, The Gallup uh, Gallup surveys do a survey every year on trust and confidence in institutions. And if you look at uh, the police, they are always top three. They're usually third, right behind uh, the military and small business. Of course, neither of which you call in an emergency. I guess unless you're the president. But um, so uh, there. But once you break it down along racial lines, that trust erodes greatly, particularly among uh, Black Americans. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But it, it is a long, a long-standing issue. So even though a lot of uh, police officers today don't think they're very much appreciated, and not well supported. It basically depends what neighborhood they're in. And uh, and I think that is something that people really need to understand that they that black Americans tend to experience policing in an entirely different way than white Americans do.
0: Um, You write in your piece, policymakers and particularly police departments need to reflect on how their actions and policies have led to this moment. While it's clear some individuals came to the protests intending to foment chaos, too many police departments shamed themselves and their profession with their actions and policy decisions so um i i can hear the voice in my head because i am uh, uh, perpetually afflicted with devil's advocacy so like i can hear the voice saying that uh well a lot of these people showed up and they started throwing stuff at the cops and the cops responded what are they supposed to do just let the cities burned which i guess some of them did but like <laughs> are they just like what is the police response supposed to look like when people get violent
1: okay well when people get violence is the is the important thing right. right if if police can respond to violence with violence and that they're perfectly entitled to that but it's when that they like basically set their own kind of random deadlines that they're just going to respond with overwhelming force to peaceful protesters which i saw in my own hometown i've seen it the when they first initiated the tear gas uh, against peaceful protesters. there And from all different angles, no, there was no bottle thrown. There wasn't so much as a plastic bottle being thrown. There was nothing. They just decided, oh, okay, we're done with this. And it was the middle of the day, and they just decided to initiate overwhelming force to disperse peaceful protesters. And that creates chaos. I mean, you just, you know, the, the day after that first day when, um, you know, Fort Wayne made the national news, uh, the mayor and the sheriff came out and said, Well, you know, we ha- we we reserve the right to use violence if it's used against us. And we're going to arrest people I'm like aha, but it's really much it's much harder to arrest people. If you throw tear gas at them and make them run in all sorts of different directions. It just doesn't make sense from a strategic point of view. And so what they they didn't really want to preserve peace, which is what the cops are supposed to be doing. What they were doing was they were enforcing their will, they were they were saying, No, we're done with this, you're gonna, you know, we're going to use violence to uh, assert our control back over the streets. And I think that was inappropriate and handled in entirely the wrong way.
0: So uh, you're talking about legitimacy here. And so uh, if I, a non-protester, am uh, trying to make my way through a downtown district and the streets are blocked by protesters, even though they're peaceful, um, who's who's got the legitimate right to the street? Right. I'm assuming that not all these protests had permits. Let's just put yeah, that up there, enough. right? <laughs> Let's yeah. assume that all. Yeah. Will... Because if you have a permit, then fine, you can do your parades and yeah. obviously so. Um, but if you don't have the permit and you're just walking around, as I've you know, it happened here in my city in Asheville. They just kind of walked all over the place and just marched around the streets and they stopped traffic and all that. So at some point, does law enforcement say, okay, you know what? You've been hanging out here for four hours. We're done. You you don't get to occupy the streets.
1: Yeah, sure. And that's when you can arrest people, you mm-hmm. can say this is an illegal demonstration. And we're like, Okay, uh, put your hands behind your back, we're gonna put you in zip cups, and we're gonna take you down to jail. That's arresting peaceful protesters is something that's been done. And I don't have, you know, obviously, it's not ideal, right. but it's something that can be done. And that is how if you say, Okay, well, the, the the greater need is for this thoroughfare to be cleared again. And you have a bunch of people sitting down in the middle of the street, then you then you can arrest them. And if they go peacefully, then you do that peacefully. But again, you know, throwing projectiles and, you know, a couple of people and at least one person in Fort Wayne lost an eye to a rubber bullet, you know, that that's just overwhelming force is absolutely not necessary unless they are being attacked. And the f- fact of that is, is police have known this for a very long time. That uh, I uh, recently uh, revisited Bradley Balco's Rise of the Warrior Cop. And I was struck again by reading how uh, a DC police chief in the 1970s, I forget his name off the top of my head, who uh, was known as the law and order guy but when there were demonstrations he and in- he intentionally kept the cops and riot gear on side streets and he had his plain clothes out there you know just you know to monitor the situation but he knew that if you come out it- with cops and riot gear it's a very sort of putting your chest out you know you show a force and it's very antagonistic where and that just sort of increases the likelihood of confrontation whereas if you just have police officers who are just monitoring the situation and not you know not starting any guff or anything like that that uh like uh protests are likely to end more peacefully and so this is something that they've known for 40 years and at least 40 years and yet we saw all over the country they were out in riot gear looking to start trouble and, it, and, and, and the police were looking to start trouble. And that that I found was just really bad strategy, besides the fact that, you know, these protests are actually aimed at police violence.
0: Right. So explain that. Why is it a bad strategy?
1: So, again, if you're trying to maintain the peace and show the public that you are, a, a you know, you are an institution that is trying to enforce uh, to to preserve order and to protect individual rights, overwhelming violence to peaceful protesters doesn't make any sense. So if you just say, okay, now if they're making arrests, I, you know, people get arrested in protesting in DC all the time, they get sit ins, you know, I think Susan Sarandon has been arrested, I don't know how many times in the past (laughs) few, past few years, you know, that is something that happens. And no one, people like me don't come out and complain, oh, you shouldn't be arresting those people. No, that's fine. They're, they're blocking traffic, you can do that if you give them plenty of warning, and they choose not to leave choose not to move. But that's not what the police have chosen to do. They're like, okay, we're sick of this, we're mad at you, and we're just going to show over you know, overwhelming force. And that escalated over several days in many in many cities, including DC. Mm-hmm. Uh and it just made the protest worse and worse. And the more and more people came out because they were proving the protesters' point. And more people were like, okay, I can't this is this is ridiculous. I'm I, I'm going to protest this too because they're you know they're acting in a way inconsistent with the public peace
0: i'm curious i know this, i don't you didn't write about this but i'm curious do you think that the lockdowns had an impact on the turnout at the protests due to like because i i viewed it as sort of the only socially acceptable mass gathering that you can go to the, those mass gatherings and it was okay but if you went to like the reopen uh Protests, or there was a racetrack in North Carolina that was opening in defiance of the uh, governor's stay-at-home order. Um, you know, they were they were called reckless and you know, jeopardizing people's lives and stuff. But I, there was none of that kind of scolding for the protesters, and so it seemed like, okay, this one's okay.
1: Oh, I mean, I saw plenty of protests. I mean, the scolding of the protesters, oh. but it, but, but it was. But the thing is, is I, I walked around because I live in Washington D.C. and I walked around. Uh, I take a walk every day and I sometimes I walk down near the Capitol. And so when all this stuff was really going on, I, I went down to see what, what the protesters were doing. They were all, they were they were passing out masks. They were staying in safe distances and they were trying to maintain these social distance, the distances. Unfortunately, what happened in many uh, situations, not necessarily in DC, but uh, some police officer, like they would start corralling them and then make like, so social distancing was impossible and then throwing in the tear gas it, it was, it was just a mess. Yeah. But, um, but as far as I do think some people were probably a little hypocritical with, with, you know, saying, Oh, yes, uh, somehow this uh, moral issue is more impo- important than the virus, which I obviously don't agree with. Um, but insofar as like, people were out there actually trying to uh, be safe about it but sometimes the circumstances didn't uh didn't allow that because i mean obviously you, you see some of these protests that end up um being dispersed and then running away and then going into people's homes you know that i mean and that, being invited it's yeah, not yeah. like they were breaking into people's homes they're they're uh, seeking refuge being, yeah yeah seeking refuge in people's homes and then the cops go in chasing them and yeah. it's just like what? well i, I guess the
0: I, I guess i i was only asking in that the sense that the the lockdown sort of you know you you lock people away for three months and then say you can't leave, you can't leave but this this one seems like okay right and then it kind of yeah. it, it allows people the freedom and there's like a a pressure release valve that occurs i I, I don't know I just because i've I've not seen anything like it i'm forty six i've not, I've not seen anything like like this kind of overwhelming turnout for uh for protest all over the place and some of the messages and then with the, you know, the statues getting torn down and stuff, you know, there's kind of people all over the place about why they're out there protesting. So that's why I say, like, I just think I'm not sure that if everybody was still, you know, near hundred percent employment and uh, you know, working everywhere, and not locked down and no plague uh, sweeping the land, I'm thinking maybe they wouldn't have had the turnout or it wouldn't have been, uh, it wouldn't have been as widespread. I, I...
1: Yeah, I think that's very possible. I mean, I th- obviously a lot, some people have a lot more time on their hands right. and people were feeling feeling stir crazy. I think there probably were a lot of people who uh, you know, were probably out there for the first time and just uh I mean, just by numbers it yeah. didn't necessarily there were a lot of people out there for the first time. But also because people weren't do spending so much time at work and going on about their daily lives, they actually st- stopped and saw what what happened you know what happened to george floyd and what happened you know they got to like the information about what's going on and how you know the police you know uh, particularly in louisville with the killing of brianna taylor dragged their feet and you know the information is not coming out that sort of stuff and that and then seeing the police officers react so poorly to uh peaceful protesters that just shows them like oh my this is i can't believe this is actually happening this is my country what's going on i'm i'm, I'm against this too and they go out so yeah, yeah I, I i'm sure it had some do you know something to do with it but we'll have to wait for like phd paper sure, like right. 10 years from now right. like studying the effect so of
0: in your piece you you uh you put reformers versus uh abolitionists when it comes to police uh the question of police abuse. You say there are two starting positions uh, for changing American policing. Uh, One is the police reform camp and the other is police abolition. So kind of break those down for us. What's the police reform and like who's in that camp? And then what's abolition and who's in that camp?
1: So um, these are very, very broad umbrella top ways to think about it. I use for the piece. So reformers uh, take police for a given. That uh, we're always going to have police, or at least for the foreseeable future, and we just need to make change the rules on how they operate for them to be better. Uh, But they understand that there's something, there's a problem, there are some problems there. Uh, Now, keep in mind in the reform camp, you have every group from you know police officers who just want to tweak a little bit, you know, just like oh, and we want to find like more efficient ways to get policing done, or we just need better training or more money or something along those lines, to people who are like, end the drug war, you know, destroy, you know, abolish qualified immunity, that sort of stuff. But still with the assumption that the police generally function as a legitimate part of society. So, I mean, again, academics, think tankers, uh, you know, activists, you know, there there are plenty of people, it's a pretty wide spectrum. On the other hand, you have these uh, abolitionists. Um, they're kind of part of it, what's known as the prison industrial complex. Abolition that basically want to remake society uh, in a way that uh, doesn't need cops and you know closes the prisons and just basically reform society from the ground up in a way that is in many ways compelling in other ways absolutely frightening. Um, So uh, I have a lot of sympathies for the abolitionists, They they are the activists, they live in the communities, they're creating alternatives to policing, that uh, I think are actually very positive uh, outcomes and, 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 um, and programs that they've done. And they're the ones that are on the ground that are like are forcing city councils hands to, you know, to, to make these changes. So I think they're absolutely a core constituency of you know, the, the people who need to make change and they are the people who are experiencing the worst of American policing on a daily basis. Uh, they are community activists. They are the people who've been arrested. They are the people who like some, I mean, some people who are, you know, have been justice involved and come come out. Um, but at the same time, they do have, uh, you know, some of their like broader economic principles are not necessarily in line with traditional American
0: values. One of the things, um, that has come out of and maybe i'm wrong on this i think the abolition movement side of this equation is that the defund police i guess i should just ask you is that the defund the police camp or because like i kind of get mixed messages there too it was you know when i hear defund the police i hear abolition but then i hear well we don't mean you know get rid of it (laughs) (laughs) so i'm kind of i'm kind of confused as to what that means but is that the abolition camp more or
1: less yes This um the thing is is all of these are very fragmented groups. And you have different cities with different organizations, you have different, you know, people who uh, are in the reform camp have called themselves abolitionists on certain on certain levels. Like, if you say, you know, abolish vice task forces and end the drug war, that makes you an abolitionist. Like, okay, In that, in that case, I'm an abolitionist, but I don't think so. Um, So it's the labels are just sort of, um, you know, rough metrics to understand where it is. But yes, defund is the defund police messaging comes from the abolitionist movement and their idea is take money away from the police department and put it into, um, different programs within the, the most, uh, like the, uh, the hardest impacted, uh, communities. And you know, whether that's for violence interrupters, people who try and, uh, and violence before it begins. Um, I can get into that a little bit more. Uh, There, you know, whether it's mental health programs, drug, you know, voluntary drug programs, uh, education, and, you know, building parks, whatever, just making the hardest hit communities uh, better places to live. And I'm more or less for what they're trying to do. I don't think it's gonna be as easy as just take X amount away from the cops and put it towards these programs. I just don't think it works. Uh, that that's going to ha- particularly as these cities are going to see, you know, massive tax shortfalls because of the pandemic. That they're just not going to be like, oh, well, let's just start investing all this extra money in the hardest hit communities. I, I think they do need help, but it, the extra uh, arguments they're making, like cancel rent, and you know, basically more of the um, openly socialist. Uh, programs that they want to the institute are going to scare a lot of the people who are finally in the camp. They're like, oh, Okay, we need to do something about
0: police, right? Yeah, let's do something. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let, not that, right? Yeah, that's too much. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I was <laughs> like, it, 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 they've been working for years to try and get p- people in by and let's be explicit white people to understand what it is that black communities, how black communities view the police and how they experience the police. And now they actually have white people's attention. And it's like, that's great. And they're like, and you know, socialism. And i was just like, oh, uh, yeah, that's not most people are not going to be down for this.
0: Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at RedRockPhotoNC.com. Use promo code Pete for 20% off. That's RedRockPhotoNC.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. Schaeffersmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her All-Star Powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house, but you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her All-Star Powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483 mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, Grouches on Main Street Downtown Clyde across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com We continue our conversation now with Jonathan Blanks. He is a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And we were discussing the mixed messaging, if you will, of some of the Black Lives Matter activists.
1: I, I think, like, the, the practical, you know, let's make policing, like, less needed in those communities and fix those communities, absolutely behind that. But, you know, the actual, you know, cancel rent, like, those, it, I, I, if, I think people think, And and I'm not trying to speak for them, but I think it's easier when people think that, you know, everyone's paying rent to some sort of rich multinational corporation. They have more money than they know what to do with. And, you know, canceling rent for a year is going to have no, you know, downward impact in the economy. But actually, you know, yeah, some of those are multinational corporations, but they're also multinational corporations that have stock that are in, you know, pensions and 401ks and all that sort of thing that, you know, the economy goes, you can't just like pass the debt that way now if you want to argue that we need more direct cash payments so people can pay their rent that's an argument for the economists mm-hmm. but insofar as it's like cancel rent i'm like I, no right. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how things work right? right
0: and and it doesn't advance the ball on police abuse reforms um and and that's sort of gets into this other uh question like people say okay well what kind of reforms do you want to do you want to enact and when they hear you know rent uh uh, uh jubilee or whatever for a year like that's that's not that's not in line with what you're advocating, and so now people start thinking it's a disingenuous movement, uh, and then all of the arguments can therefore get dismissed, right?
1: Right, and the thing is, is I, I mean, the, it, they are logically consistent. They are saying we want to make the police as ancillary in our communities as they are in rich white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You don't see cops in those neighborhoods except for maybe to pass out speeding tickets and to respond if you know someone's cat gets up in a tree or something like it's just
0: so why you know, is that though so huh? well, but why is that Why is so because in in Asheville, north carolina about uh, two years ago there's a big argument that erupted after a police officer beat up uh jay walker and uh, he was black the cop was white caught on video with the body cam and everything and um there was this then big fight about what to do with the policing we're going to move it around and all this and you had activists that were saying we don't want cops in our neighborhoods And the the police department was saying, well, that's where the calls for service are. Like, we respond to where the calls for service occur. So if you don't want us in the neighborhood, that means we're not responding to calls.
1: Right. And so uh, the defund people will argue that most of those calls don't actually require an armed cop. You know, they could be like, if it's a domestic disturbance, it can be a family counselor. If it is a, you know, if it's someone acting weird, it could be a mental health you know, a mental health counselor that you don't need to send send an armed, you know, guy with the power to shoot you to every single problem that happens in those neighborhoods. And again, that's a fair assessment. And if you talk to cops, a lot of them are like, "We're not trained for this. We don't want to deal with this stuff either." Um, so there is, there are way like there are paths to you know working together on this. Um, but there is a there is a larger problem where. If you look at the data, evidence-based policing, that actually shows that uh, visible cops deter crime. They Now, what I think the disconnect happens is because cops are often measured just like anyone else at a job on performance metrics. You know, um, if you're on ticket, if you're on traffic duty and you and in an eight hour shift, you only pull over two people in an area that is known for speeding, okay, you're not doing your job. You understand that? Well, the problem is, if you're in a gun recovery unit, what are you going to do? You're going to go out and recover guns? How do you do that? You stop people and you frisk them and you, you know, sometimes you break the law and, and the case may get tossed, but you did your part of the job. And so you're going to get you know, you're going to make your bonus at the end of the term or whatever. And so it's just a matter of lining up incentives and that, and that sort of thing. And so if you actually have visible cops, but they're not harassing the people in those neighborhoods, I think you have a happy medium in how to actually go about this where you're like we are here to make sure you know that shootings aren't happening or that you know people don't get out of control at the bars or anything like that but we're not stopping people looking for crime we're not looking for guns we're not looking for weed we're not looking for all these issues just because we need to make our numbers but that's that's a problem with police administration and like because sometimes it's police brass that are calling for that sometimes it's if there's an uptick in violent crime uh, the mayor is going to call the the you know the police chief, and you're like, what are you doing about this? Well, okay, then you send all your officers out to go look for guns, and like, oh, we 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 found fifty guns. We've had to stop six thousand people to do it, but we found fifty guns. And I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. This is this is exactly what happened in, in um, Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, I testified before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, well, uh, an advisory commission of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, out there, and they. Responded to an uptick in violent crime by assigning over cops to overtime in black communities, intentionally pulling people over for you know very minor violations, trying to get them to search the car. And, they, and in six months, they found 50 gun. Well, they found 50 weapons. They didn't. They didn't even describe them as guns, so they could have had screwdrivers
0: for all I know. <laughs> the but British definition these, of a weapon, right? The yeah, British they, definition. <laughs> they they,
1: re, they recovered these weapons, and but if you look, at, it took them over six thousand stops to do it and the people didn't appreciate it and they're saying hey please stop doing this and the little rock police i cannot i don't make this up said this is community policing and for those who may not be around the reform movement very much community policing is the sort of feel-good officer-friendly way of policing and you know it's you know uh ice cream socials and meet a cop those sorts of happy feely uh moments that's community policing and the idea that you're pulling people over and pressuring them to search your car as community policing is just a slap in the face. And, um, and the thing is, is, again, if you look at evidence based policing, uh, uh, academics, what you see is, again, visible cops, uh, decrease the amount of crime. Uh, So when they have all these cops in these neighborhoods, pulling these people over with their lights on crime did, in fact, go down, but they didn't necessarily have to, you know, pull people over and harass them to get that to happen. And I think that is one of those major disconnects between the people who are experiencing these bad policing and want it to change and the police who are like, well, we're trying to do something about it. And they're like, well, just because you do something about it and you have good intentions doesn't make it the right thing to do.
0: Well, and this gets to your point. Uh, you quote psychologist Tom Tyler, who has written extensively, you say about the importance of legitimacy in law enforcement. And he shows that most people obey laws not because they're afraid of getting caught by the cops. They obey the laws because they believe in the legitimacy of the lawmaking machinery of society. So how does that sort of square with what you just expressed, this notion that people see cops and that's better for the community?
1: Okay. So just like if you're driving down the highway, you're you're thinking, you know, like I'm I can go a little bit over the speed limit and i'm gonna be okay but you see a cop you take your foot off the gas and maybe you hit the brake which you shouldn't do but right. <laughs> but you take your foot off the gas right only if you and see so, them coming but,
0: at you you don't hit the brake if they're in the if they've passed yeah, yeah. You, right? yeah just yeah
1: just yeah <laughs> so um but at the same time in your regular way of doing uh, uh, in your everyday life you're not oh i'm not gonna do heroin because it's illegal you're doing it well it's i mean it's because it's bad for me but also it's like that's not just something that we do in society now people do it i understand that but those people have other issues and people who are committing the most crime in this country which is a very small percentage of population um they have issues that we need to interdict in some way or form maybe it's law enforcement maybe it's mental health maybe it's finding them a job something but most people are not following the rules because, oh, I'm afraid the cops are gonna get me. You know, you don't not rob your neighbor because, oh, I could get arrested. You're like, that's just not the way we do things because this is society and this is how we operate. I go by the rules and I expect people to treat me to treat me okay. And that if I get in trouble, I can call the cops and they will treat me okay. And that's how we, we all operate. There aren't enough cops in the country to make sure we all follow the rules all the time. And so it's that sort of thing but in these communities where police are basically acting like occupying forces, they stop you, they search you, they throw you up against the wall, looking for guns. They treat you like it doesn't matter. They are delegitimizing not only themselves, but how society treats the people in those neighborhoods. And because these neighborhoods are still racially segregated and they are seeing, um, you know, they have higher unemployment, they have higher crime rates, all of these things are going on. They are actually delegitimizing themselves and, Uh, society generally, and then making it, you know, an easier decision for people who are on the margins of society that that are are more likely to commit these crimes, um, that they just don't care. And and, and if people who are like sort of at risk can maybe tip them, you know, it's possible, I'm not claiming this is absolutely true, and this is not something that Tom Tyler has said, but it just follows logically that people on the margins are going to be uh, less likely to think society is going to treat them well, so why follow the rules? Right? And so that's why it's important for police to be legitimate, to actually help people when they need it, to stop abusing people in the or you know, in the everyday running of their of their jobs, and actually become a force for good in the society that we want them to be. Um, it it's it seems simple, but all there are just so many incentives on so many different levels that it's very easy for cops to fall into the old habit of, okay, guns, you know, fire, there was a shooting, we got to shake everyone down for guns. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a vicious cycle that way.
0: Don't we demand that though, as like the voting population, like, Hey, why is this crime so high? You know, we want a reduction in the, in the crime rate. And so we pressure politicians to quote, do something.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly the problem. Police are being asked to do something. And so like we have all these, you know, uh, in the in the 1980s you know we had the crack epidemic and so what did we do we threw like long sentences at crack dealers and you know we uh beefed up police departments and they went in and they were you know busting heads going out on the streets and that's what and they were using a lot of violence and um then all of a sudden and it's not just a drug war but it's connected to the drug war all of a sudden we have two and a half like 2.2 million people incarcerated in this country. We are the land of the free, and we have a quarter of the people in prison all over the country. I mean, all over the world, excuse me. And something went wrong. And it's natural for people to want the police to do something, but we're asking them to do too much, and they'll tell you we're asking them to do too much. And then when they do it, we get mad at them because of the, the way that they do it. And so I understand why police feel sort of in a corner like, damn if they do, damn if they don't, but it really has to be uh, evidence-based policing, which is something that is relatively new, by the way, uh, to show what what in policing works and what doesn't and what has too high of a social cost. Um, What I mean by evidence-based policing, by the way, is that uh, for years, cops kind of worked on hunches. You know um they're like okay well we just start asking people and see what's going on and and if we we, if someone uses force against us we use force against them and so but there was no you know great academic literature behind it when i first got into studying criminal justice i realized that unlike every other functioning part of government regardless of what you think of it, <laughs> you know, whether it's, you know,
0: Functioning is even, a loosely defined term. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: But insofar as like, if you ask a, a cabinet department for data, they will give you data. They will give you all the data you want. You ask a police department for data and they're like, what are you talking about? And so for example, um, up until a few years ago, the best numbers that anyone had came from the FBI about how many people cops shoot and kill every year. And the best number we had was roughly 400. Then the Washington Post and the Guardian, uh, U.S., uh, st- basically crowdsource the information, stuck a research team on it, and now we know that they shoot and kill a thousand people a year. And if we can't get the amount, immo- the right number of people that you know cops put in the streets, like th- the amount of people they shoot and kill, how are we going to find out anything else? And so, uh, but there is a group of academics and a lot of them are former cops that are actually trying to use. Um, you know, random control trials, and, you know, trying different aspects of policing and testing it against a a control group to see if this stuff works. And, you know, the civil libertarians would be happy to know that again, cops, you know, cops in neighborhoods can deter crime. But, you know, it's not necessarily that stop and frisk does, Mm -hmm. right? That, you know, stop and frisk in New York, where they, it was an anti gun measure, they, uh, they did recover 8,000 guns over 10 years, they stopped 4 million people to do it. Two-tenths of 1% hit rate, right? That's that's obscene, honestly. And so we're now being able to build this data and to actually test these ideas uh, and actually understand what good policing looks like. Uh, and I think that is a very, uh, um, that's one of the reasons why I'm still in the reform camp because I think we are now getting the information to show what data does and how we can make policing better in a way that doesn't uh, hurt all the people that are complaining that it's uh, too harmful against them.
0: I know I've kept you way longer than I I asked you for, but I wanted to just kind of uh, wrap up with just uh, sort of the solutions component here. Um, What is the way forward? You mentioned evidence-based policing, this data collection, then using the data. What else? uh, Because in your piece, you said... um, Cops have to uh, recognize they inflict harm onto communities, particularly black neighborhoods. uh, And uh, you said that they have to sincerely acknowledge their role in causing pain in the community. uh, And if they don't do that, their efforts are meaningless. But like, what does that look like?
1: Okay, so um, when you have all these like neighborhood meetings and the cops are like, oh, we're trying to do our jobs, we're trying to do our jobs. You have thousands of people in the street risking maiming, teargassing, and just absolutely furious that they've been mistreated. Not acknowledging that they have a legitimate point by publicly saying, "Okay, we've done this wrong. We have, we have done this wrong, and we're sorry, and we're going to try and work to make it better." I don't understand why that isn't like the number one first step uh, here in in D.C. Which definitely the Metropolitan Police Department has its issues, but if you if you go to any of their um, public events, their chief, the first one of the first things he says, he's very proud of the fact that they've reduced use of force and and reduced the amount of violence that that DC police use. And he said, you know what? In the 1990s, we had the DOJ come in and fix this department we were too violent we weren't doing the right things and the thing is is we have an independent auditor that checks every year and just shows that we're being consistent with the consent decree that made us a less violent and better police department and kudos to them for that and so that's step one now grant keep in mind black lives matter here still very upset with them (laughs) and and with good reason for a lot of for and and there's a, a lot of reasons for that but insofar as like that is just a necessary step it's not sufficient but it's necessary that, because if you're just like, oh, we've done nothing wrong, or, oh, we just need to tweak at the, you know, tweak at the margins and about what, of how we're policing, you're not gonna fix anything. People are still gonna be mad and you're not actually addressing anything. So changing how you do business in the communities that are most upset by what you're doing, you know, step one. Um, step two, change the incentive for the officers on the, fr- on the front lines. Um, I've done a lot of ride alongs here with the DC police department And most of those cops are good cops and they are trying to do the right thing. And they understand that shaking people down, looking for guns and drugs is not the way to do it. If you would have told 16 year old me that I'd be riding shotgun with a police department, with a, with a cop through a haze of marijuana smoke, which is still illegal in DC well, possession is fine and legal, you know, you can't smoke it outside. Right. Um, sometimes you'd have a hard time understanding that walking around. But, right. <laughs> um, but just like driving through cig- marijuana smoke, and he didn't blink. He was just like, Yeah, you know, that's, and I asked him about it. And he was just like, Oh, I mean, I could, I could stop and I could harass the guys. And you know, I don't know who had it on them who, you know, and then I have to go, you know, tally up the arrest pulls me off the street. Like, who's this serving? What what good is that? And just understanding and instilling that throughout the department, is I think a good thing. And, and again, the DC frontline cops are pretty good about that idea of community policing. You're not looking for crime. You're actually just trying to keep people safe. Um, but that requires getting rid of like, again, gun recovery units. Yes, you want to respond to gun violence, but shaking people down and, uh, getting and arresting them, and then having their cases tossed in court because you broke the law when you're looking for those guns, again, doesn't help anyone. Um, and other units like that, that incentivize police officers to make arrests and to stop people that that's, that's a, a major harm that is going along with like, regular policing. If you look at Philando Castile, in in Minneapolis, again, yeah. going back where George Floyd was killed, he was stopped 46 times in 13 years. And he had one speeding ticket for that. There was one stop sign he blew, and then the rest of them were just like ticky tack, ridiculous violations or driving without a license, which he couldn't, which he was suspended because, you know, he couldn't pay the fines for being pulled over so much. And it just, that's predatory policing and it's absolutely not useful. And so it's getting rid of that sort of thing. And again, um, and then the third prong is accountability. We see all these police officers who are committing violence and they're not being held to account. They, they um, you know, the fact that uh, in, until recently one of the good uh, outcomes of the, all these protests or the repeal of this law called 50A in New York state. And what that law did was pr- protect the disciplinary records of all uh, cops in New York state. So uh, at one point, uh, WNYC did this uh, report where they knew that there was a uh, NYPD, NYPD officer who had 50 complaints against him and it was against the law to know his name. Like they, the, 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 the NYPD could not release his name. And the thing is most police officers don't have a complaint or maybe they have one. This guy had 50 and still had a job. And that sort of legislative fix is something that the, the cops can't do on their own and so the reformers have to be able to go into the legislatures and say get rid of these laws um you know uh restrict the, the power of police unions to protect these these cops from accountability because the thing is is like they're not protecting the best cops they're protecting the worst cops from any accountability whatsoever and uh destroying the reputations of the good ones um and it, it's just that, three pong, that three-pronged set is acknowledge you know, fix the internal policies and then change the laws. And uh, outside of that, you know, because cops are, cops are reality for the foreseeable future. I, I know a lot of people want to get rid of them, but it's something that just needs to be done.
0: I kept you twice as long as I promised I would. Jonathan Blanks, a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. uh, Their website, freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Blanks Slate. And I appreciate your time, Jonathan. Thanks so much for being so generous with it. Oh, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. And in a related topic, have you heard of Retraction Gate? Probably not, right? Okay, probably not because I just made up the name right now. But, um... You're going to hear about it right now because it's kind of related. Well, it is related, actually. Um, The authors of an often cited study about racial bias in police shootings have now asked for their own study to be retracted. Okay. They're asking for their own study to be retracted. They do stand behind the data, though, and they do stand behind their statistical analysis. So they don't have any problem with what they did. Right? They stand behind the work. We didn't make any mistakes like this. This is all fine and good. All of the the content is accurate. The data, the analysis, it's accurate, right? But we need you to retract the paper. <laughs> Why? They're retracting the paper because they don't like the way it's being discussed in the media. <laughs> well, okay. Particularly, they don't like the way it's being discussed in the conservative media. That's really the issue here. So here's a piece by Robert Verbruggen. He is a writer at National Review. He says, as I explained last year, the study, because by the way, the study is from last year. He says, as I explained last year, the study has been controversial because of the roundabout way that it approached the issue. It checked to see, and you'll probably remember this, we talked about it, conservative outlets were talking about the study when it was released. Um, If we check to see when police kill civilians, is there a correlation between the cops race and the suspects race? Okay, which kind of makes sense. If you're trying to find bias among police officers shooting and killing black people, then... Is the race of the cop and the race of the suspect, like, is that a determining factor? Can you find some data to support that? The idea is that if white cops are killing blacks out of bias, then white cops should disproportionately be involved in the killings of blacks, right? If this makes sense, it's a logical progression, right? It's, it's saying, okay, if cops are killing um, uh, black people and they're white cops, then we should see this disproportionality among the data. He says at the time, he says the opposite is actually the case. Black suspects are disproportionately killed by black officers. But this isn't really as odd as it seems, he wrote at the time, because some parts of the country have higher black populations than others. And in those places, both suspects and officers are more likely to be black. Makes sense, right? All of this makes sense. Now, there are limits to this approach, he said. Black cops might disproportionately patrol black neighborhoods, even within counties. Uh, If this is the case, then black suspects and black officers might encounter each other more, above and beyond what's accounted for in the statistical controls, which could cancel out the effects of white cop racism, right? So, in other words, all of this is very complex, and it was at the time, but the study author's asked for a retraction of their paper uh, initially because they said um, that they didn't like the way it was being used by partic- uh, you know, media people, particularly conservative media people like Heather MacDonald. Um, but then they said, oh, wait, wait, wait. you guys are misinterpreting what we said. <laughs> we didn't mean it like that. No, no, no. It's not because of mob pressure or distaste for the political views of people citing the work approvingly. Um, they said, this is, by the way, uh, who? what are the names? David Johnson and Joe Cesario. Um, they said, people were incorrectly concluding that we retracted due to either political pressure or the political views of those citing the paper. Neither is correct. And so this version of our request, this amended request to retract the paper that they totally stand behind... <laughs> This is hopefully going to make it more clear. They said, "...we were careless when describing the inferences that could be made from our data, and this led to the misuse of our article to support the position that the probability of being shot by police did not differ between black and white Americans. To be clear, our work does not speak to this issue and should not be used to support such statements." Echoing what Jonathan Blanks mentioned in my interview, they said current analysis on police use of force are limited by the lack of comprehensive and complete national databases on police interactions with the public where force is used and where force is not used. That's a wrap for this episode. Please remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a thumbs up in the reviews and uh, think about becoming a patron of the program. You'll get cool stuff and exclusive content. Links are at and Uh, also in the description of the podcast here. Thanks so much for your support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.